Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about France dealing with its energy problems, Biden's trip to the Middle East, and a crossroads for the EU that may decide the future of this organization. All that and more, coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Russia is now pushing for an international recognition of its ownership over Crimea. So, they, so they're already sort of expanding the definition of what is Russian. As up until now, Crimea has technically still been disputed territory. And, as a, actually, now that I think about it, recognition of Crimea as Russian territory is probably one of the main aims of the war in Ukraine, if nothing else. That'll most likely be a concession that the Ukrainian government would have to, well, concede to the Russians, if Ukraine is still alive by the end of all this. However, you can sidestep that by getting other countries to recognize Crimea as a part of Russia. And if you can get enough of them to recognize Crimea as Russian, well, you... You don't really need the approval of anyone else if you can get, say, China, Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, and Moldova, and Georgia. Basically, all the other Black Sea nations, with the obvious exception of Ukraine. If you can get those countries to accept Crimea as part of Russia, then who else matters? No one else is in the Crimea. And so, if Ukraine loses, well, when they lose, but I'll say if, then they're undoubtedly going to have to surrender Ukraine, well, not Ukraine, they're going to have to surrender Crimea to Russia anyway. So then you have everybody that matters recognizing that Crimea is a part of Russia, and you don't really need to go much farther. So there's an interesting little story coming out of this. And we'll see where that goes. It may, it may just end up being a symbolic gesture among the countries that choose to do so. But symbolic gestures do have their purposes. You know, they open the door for diplomacy and they can be used as a definitive markers of where one nation stands at any given time. So we'll see what comes of that. In Sudan, tribe-on-tribe violence between the Hausa and Berta ethnic groups in the recent days have left 65 dead. And the clashes continue with the Sudanese, I believe, calling in some elements of their military to sort of get this fighting to stop. So we have ethnic tensions in Sudan spilling out and causing a lot of bloodshed. So Sudan's in a pretty chaotic position. I mean, they they just went through like five coups, so I guess it can only be expected that they wouldn't exactly be in the most stable of situations. But I guess we can now throw tribal violence into the mix. And we'll see how Sudan looks on the other side of this. 
Meanwhile, strikes in the airline industry have left over 500 flights canceled in Italy, I believe. I'm pretty sure that's Italy. For some reason, I've forgotten to write down the country in my notes, but I'm pretty sure I was reading about Italy when I read that. So, major strikes, airline industry, lots of flights canceled. Probably more by now, because I don't think the I don't think the strikes have stopped. So we're probably looking at another at least twenty to thirty flights added on top of that. At least, probably maybe a bit more. But yeah, so we're those are gonna hit supply lines. I'll just say that much. In a time when supply lines are already under strain from other factors around the world. The European Commission, in other news, uh, the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, she has taken a visit to Azerbaijan, uh, hoping to get a natural gas deal from the country to sort of circumnavigate their Russian gas and get new gas partners while Russia's at war with Ukraine. And this is a trend among a lot of countries in Europe and in America, and we'll really get into the American side of that coin in the later parts of this episode, but what we have here is the EU reaching out to Azerbaijan as a means of getting gas that doesn't come from Russia. Will they be able to do it? We'll see, but will it be enough? No, it won't be. Azerbaijan by itself is a major producer but it won't be enough. Not with not with the existing infrastructure. And uh, you'll need new infrastructure just to just to even start really making up for the gas that Russia used to give you. And even then you're talking about years of that project being constructed. So this is potentially a long term fix, but by the time the long term fix uh comes into effect, the Russians might already be back to selling gas to Europe. So, and it's unclear whether or not the EU is committed to building these, the pipelines and the infrastructure necessary to get the gas from Azerbaijan all the way to the EU, because it would obviously have to not go through Russia. That would sort of defeat the purpose of doing this. It would have to either go through Georgia and then go across the Black Sea into Romania, or... It would have to go th- through Armenia and Turkey and then come up into either Greece or Bulgaria. So those are the only two options. Those are the only two routes available for any pipeline that would come out of Azerbaijan. But the EU is opposed to, you know, hydrocarbon in general. They don't like coal. They don't like oil. They don't like natural gas. And while the situation with Russia has forced them to act on getting more of the hydrocarbons that they don't like, particularly in the form of natural gas, I, I'm not entirely sure if the EU specifically would be willing to invest in a pipeline, because they, they've been against pipelines for a long time. Germany had a couple of pipelines, they cut them down, well they shut them down. Uh, France and Spain have pipelines that they're working on with North African countries. Italy has a whole bunch of pipelines that are just running through it as a transit state. 
but the EU generally doesn't do pipelines or oil. So we'll see what they choose to do here. Because the only way you're going to get that oil is through pipelines. Well, well, the natural gas, I should say. No. The, the oil can come from any means of transportation that can hold a barrel of oil, such as trains, trucks, uh, ships. You can do all that with oil. Natural gas, you need a, either a pipeline or a specially designed ship meant to carry the, the gas at really, really low temperatures because then it becomes a liquid. But that's really, really expensive and would also defeat the purpose of reaching out to Azerbaijan. So we'll see what they do. Because the only way you're going to get that natural gas is by pipeline. The EU generally doesn't do pipelines. So we'll see if this is serious or, or if this is just uh, for, you know, clout, basically. <laughs> if this is a stunt. We'll see if this is a stunt or if it's serious. Because if it's serious, we'll see some, some pipeline deals. Or at the very least, talks of a pipeline deal. If it's not serious then we will see nothing even spoken of but we'll 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 see we will see meanwhile in ukraine uh president zelensky has called for a special tribunal on aggression against ukraine and he cites multiple war crimes that he claims has been committed against ukraine by the russians and so far he's gotten sympathy Although, I will say this much, what exactly is going to come from this? Because the Russians aren't going to surrender themselves to this tribunal. Why would they? That would essentially be an admission that they did something wrong. When they fundamentally believe that they're doing something right. Or at the very least, that they're doing something advantageous for Russia. What reason would the Russians have to surrender themselves to the authority of this tribunal? Even if they they were to be found guilty of having committed war crimes. Who in Russia is going to go along with this? Uh, certainly, certainly, certainly not Putin. No, no, no. He'll just chill out in Moscow and nothing will happen to him. So what's going to come from this? Even in the event that Russia is tried for war crimes and is found guilty of having committed them. What's going to come from this? I don't see it. Because, you know, the thing, the thing about these types of tribunals is you can either impose them by force, by having a stronger country come in and enforce the, the ruling, or you have to simply... Uh, you you can only you can only do that if you have the force necessary to Im- compel another country to comply or if you have defeated said country and they don't have a choice but to comply cuz they can't fight you back at all in both cases there's a a disproportionate amount of force that one side has that, and the side with the force can compel the side without the force to adhere to the tribunal as was the case with the defeated Nazi Germany. The same will not be able to be said about Russia, because no one in Europe has the force necessary to compel Russia to comply. They don't. I mean, for all the talk, 
of the incompetence of the Russian military, for all the talk of Russia's poor logistics and their incapability when it comes to fighting a modern war, nobody in Europe has the force to compel Russia to do anything. That's just a fact. And that's before we even get into the fact that the Russians have been fighting the Ukrainians with three hands tied behind their back. Again, they haven't targeted the water. They haven't targeted the gas. They haven't targeted the electricity. They only just started targeting phone lines and communications. They haven't been bombing farms. They've been leaving Ukraine alone as much as you could... Uh, actually far beyond what you would ever expect in a war. Like, nobody expected any of this. And it's overlooked very much when judging the progress of the Russian military. But it's true. The Russians are holding back significantly against the Ukrainians. And thank goodness that they are. Otherwise, we'd have a lot more civilian dead than we do today. But other countries will not get that same treatment if they go up against Russia, and I have a feeling that many of them know this. Finland knows that they will not get the Ukraine treatment if they fight Russia. Lithuania knows that they will not get the Ukraine treatment. They will be flattened with the full force of the Russian military. They will not have their lines of communication left open. They won't have their water running. They won't have their electricity running. The Russians will bomb it because they can. The Russians have the capability to do that. And they choose not to in Ukraine. Because likely because they want to take Ukraine. Or at the very least, they want to project the image that, yes, this is a special military operation. So we're going to keep unnecessary damage to a minimum. Because that's what you would do in a special military operation. E either that or they're planning on taking Ukraine. In either case, they're going to keep the damage to a minimum. They have, they're actively incentivized to do so. They have no incentive to do that with other countries. They have no incentive. And you would have to defeat Russia in a war to compel them to adhere to these tribunals. Which I'm not convinced NATO is in a position to do right now. Even with the support of the United States. Which itself is getting pretty iffy given the state of domestic affairs over here in the United States. That would be an unpopular war from the get-go, and we see how unpopular wars end up for the United States, case in point, Vietnam and Afghanistan. So, what happens? My guess is nothing. Even if Russia's found guilty in these tribunals, I don't think anything's gonna happen to the Russian leadership, or any of those Russian oligarchs, or anybody in Putin's inner circle, or Putin himself. Because they have no reason to comply. And there's no one strong enough to force them to comply. And that's the fundamental fact of international law, is that if the strong, the strong can do what they want, the weak can only do what the strong allow them to do, and in most cases, the strong will compel the, the weaker countries to adhere to these laws, while the stronger countries disregard them at their own leisure. 
Strong countries cannot force other strong countries to comply. And the weak countries can't force them to either. So international law really is whatever the great powers of the day decide that it is. If they decide to focus in on one or two aspects of the, the international law, well, those laws are actually international law now. If they choose to ignore one or two aspects of international law, well, then those two aspects are no longer international law. And that's the truth. Because law requires an enforcement mechanism, and usually stronger countries fill that role. But if one country is equal to or greater than your own strength, then you can't force it to do anything. And that is the case with Russia, which is why I believe that these won't amount to much. Um, but that probably won't stop them from happening. So we'll see what happens. In other news, Kazakhstan has opened itself up for the business which is leaving Russia, mainly uh, Western businesses. Russia ha is currently on track to becoming India's largest supplier of oil. So they're already offsetting any market losses that they have from not giving gas to oil, uh, giving gas to oil, not giving gas to Europe by simply selling more into Asia, and they now tap the Indian market. Uh, so they're doing well. The wild, there are wildfires which are continuing to ravage Portugal and Spain. I read about it last week, but I didn't think to report it, and now that they're still going on, I'm like, well, I guess I got to talk about it now. Uh, they're, they're still ravaging the. The the not outside. there's a lot going on outside, but these wildfires are still ravaging France. Uh, I almost said France, Portugal, and Spain. Goodness, and they've been going on for a while now. So, I, I guess uh, I guess they can relate to our Californians here in the United States. But uh, hopefully, they can get those fires under control and maybe start controlled burns, so they can mitigate the fuel that these sorts of wildfires would have by getting rid of the dead brush and debris before it becomes a part of a larger fire. Uh, that's also something that California doesn't do. I'll just, I'll just throw that out there. Learning from our own experience and you're here in the United States to help out people uh, overseas. In, meanwhile, in Israel, Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, the Lebanese Hezbollah group, because there's two different ones. There's one in Palestine, I believe. There's one in Palestine, and then there's one in Lebanon. The Lebanese branch of Hezbollah is at odds with Israel over a maritime border dispute, which is current. There's currently negotiations going on between Israel and Lebanon over the maritime border, and the Lebanese Hezbollah group is threatening violence against Israel if that. Those talks don't pan out in Lebanon's favor, which they may or may not, but let's be honest, this is entirely arbitrary based on how the Hezbollah group feels about the deal, regardless of whether it's fair or not. If the Hezbollah group fe feels that it's not a fair deal, they're just going to commit violence anyway, even if it is actually fair. So, they're just threatening violence. We they're threatening violence over what will ultimately end up being their opinion over the resolution of this dispute. And lastly, Macron has called for a reassessment of France's strategic position in West Africa. 
and we'll be talking more about France in just a moment when we get into the meat of the episode. And we are back for the meat of the episode, and we'll be starting off with France, because I think France is heading for some dire straits. I know recently I've been talking more and more about Germany and what Germany is going to do when the winter comes around, and that is still concerning, uh, especially with Nord Stream 1 now down for maintenance and questions immediately popping up as to whether or not it'll ever come back on again if Nord Stream 2 wasn't even allowed to get off the ground due to the Russo-Ukrainian war and mainly Germany's opposition to Russia over that Russo-Ukrainian war. Now we have France, and I talked last week, I believe, about how French energy companies, was it last week or was it the week before that? I think it was the week before last week where I brought up how major French energy companies were talking about how France was France should be looking ahead and preparing for blackouts like actual power outages and I thought this was just astounding because France gets a majority of its energy from nuclear power like oh I know it's over 50% I I keep forgetting the exact percentage but I know it's more than 50 they get a whole lot of their energy from nuclear power. So for them to be in a position where they're going to be facing blackouts and power outages over a lack of natural gas, if they, who are perhaps one of the least gas-dependent countries in Europe, are going to be facing blackouts and power outages in the coming months then what does that say for the rest of Europe, who doesn't have anywhere near the same percentage of their power grids, you know, powered by nuclear? What does that say for the rest of Europe? I mean, Germany has its own, its own direct lifelines to the Russians if they ever choose to use them. Nord Stream 1 is always there. Well, Nord Stream 1 is down for maintenance right now, but Nord Stream 2 is built. It's, right, it's there. It's available to use. The Germans can alleviate their problem at a moment's notice with two of those pipelines online at the same time. Everyone else, they don't have that option. And they are not powered by nuclear anywhere near as much as France. So it just shocked me that France, who is, who should be the least dependent and least affected by the gas shortage, is already talking about power outages. And we're, we're halfway through the summer. We're not even uh, approaching the fall yet. We're not even we're, we're not even close to winter yet, and they're already talking about running out of energy. And I just thought that was insane. And now we have this because last week, French President Macron, uh, on Bastille Day in France, he told his people in an interview. Uh, he said this. He's, quote, the war will continue. And he's talking about the war in Ukraine. He says, the summer, the early autumn, will be very hard. He says that Russia is using energy like it's using food as a weapon of war. He also says that we should prepare ourselves for the scenario where we have to go without all Russian gas. And... He later went on to say that the French government will be preparing a, quote, sobriety plan 
which is meant to conserve energy. Now, the plan includes turning off public lights during the night, and this is probably like after 12 o'clock, uh, so that you know, you know, just shut the lights off at the time that they're supposed to come on. It would defeat the purpose of having the lights, but I can imagine like really, really late at night, the lights will just go off to conserve power, and it's it's crazy. It really is crazy. And France is also looking to diversify its gas suppliers and its energy sources, namely through getting more offshore wind farms and importing more energy from other countries as well as other EU members through their imports and, you know, just moving the energy and the gas around through the EU because you can, you have free movement within the EU. So if one country has something and they have an abundance, they can send it somewhere else within the EU. So that's one thing that the French plan on doing. But it's just, again, the French should be the least vulnerable to these sorts of uh, supply shocks of natural gas. And yet, they're in these dire straits. What is this? And just like Germany, what does this say about the rest of Europe? What's the rest of Europe going to do when the winter comes? If France and Germany are struggling, what is the rest of them going to do? Because Germany has a lifeline, and the French are powered by nuclear. So if they're struggling, what's the situation going to look like for the rest of Europe? It's crazy to even think about. I, I never would have thought that I would be in a position where I'm even talking about energy shortages in France, of all places. Energy, natural gas shortages specifically in Germany, who has not one but two pipelines to Russia. It's, I, I think Europe is heading towards something very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Although, they, they are trying. I'll give them that. They are trying to find, uh, solutions to this problem they are all looking towards other suppliers they're all looking for ways to increase their uh, alternative energy because none of them are looking for ways to increase fossil fuel production none of them are looking at hydro hydrocarbons uh within their own countries mind you they're looking at the hydrocarbons of other countries and trying to import them which can offset the russian problem but ultimately you're going to need domestic production wherever you can. And I I'm, I don't see enough of that. Although that's sort of a, a habit with <clears throat> people of this particular affiliation with regards to politics. And I'm talking mainly about the green agenda. Which is, it's okay to import oil and other hydrocarbons from other countries, but it's not okay to produce them. And so that creates really unnecessary dependencies on other countries and truthfully is a part of the problem that Europe finds itself in today. It was okay to import these hydrocarbons from Russia, natural gas, oil, coal. It was okay to import those from Russia, but it wasn't okay to produce them yourself. Now that Russia has cut it off, or more accurately, now that they've sanctioned Russia and cut themselves off from Russia's resources, 
they have no domestic production. So they have to find other countries to import from, and domestic production is still taboo. And in the case of the United States, domestic production is enough to not need to import anything, truthfully. But domestic production is always off the table with the green agenda. And it's, it's crippling economically. It really is. I mean, look at the scramble right before your eyes in Europe and tell me that Europe is in a position of strength. They're not. They're in a position of abject weakness right now. And they're, sh they're scrambling, they're struggling to try to keep their houses warm when winter comes. Which is something we haven't seen since, uh, I'll say, World War II. But as a at a societal level, during peacetime, we haven't seen this sort of, uh, you know, obsession about how are we going to stay warm in the winter. We haven't seen that since the 1800s. So, how do we end up in this situation? It's the dependencies. The dependencies created by not using domestic energy pr production. Now, there are some countries where you, you just have to import the energy. You know, like, uh, uh, let's be fair. A lot of smaller countries just have to import the extra energy. Or they have to import whatever raw material they need to produce the energy. But at least you know, have something. For a lot of these countries like Germany, France, Spain, Poland, Italy, they could be producing their own energy. And they used to. They all used to do that. And they all still have the ability to do that. Although for most of them, that's going to be with coal. But France has nuclear. And I guess, I, but I guess nuclear wasn't enough by itself. Or at the very least, they didn't have a high enough percentage of their energy from nuclear to completely cancel out the damage that being cut off from natural gas would do to them. But I'm sure that there's some natural gas in a lot of these countries that could be used and could be exploited. And if not natural gas, then, well, there's other hydrocarbons. I mean, and I keep saying hydrocarbons because it's easier than saying coal, oil, and natural gas. And I... And I say hydrocarbons in place of coal, oil, and natural gas, rather than saying, oh, we can use wind and solar, because a lot of these countries, namely Germany, already use wind and solar, but it's the energy density of those technologies just isn't enough to replace coal, oil, and natural gas, and you don't have the consistency either. You can, you can burn a rock of coal in the middle of the night, and it'll get you the same result as during the day. The same cannot be said for solar power. You need the sun to be shining. And it has to not be cloudy either. The same cannot be said of wind power. where the, the, You literally need the wind to blow. And if the wind's not blowing, no power is being generated. And though those are preconditions for the generation of power that hydrocarbons simply don't have. You can use the hydrocarbons whenever you want, whatever time you want. You can turn it off, you can turn it back on, you can, you can do whatever you want with them. And they have enough energy density to keep you going, no matter what time of day it is. Wind and solar, in order for them to work, they would have to produce one. One, they'd have to produce enough energy during the day to not only meet energy demand, but they'd have to produce so much extra energy on top of your energy demand to where you could store the rest 
to keep you going through the night. Wind and solar are not at that level right now. And they're not going to be for probably decades, if we can even get them to that point. Hydrocarbons are realistically the only real power source we have that isn't nuclear. Th those are the only things that are going to power our modern society. So you got to look for the hydrocarbons you have. And if you don't, well, then you better look for nuclear like France. And you got to double down on it. And I guess in the case of France, diversify your Im your imports. Like that That's really the, the only mistake the French have made so far. And that's, I can't fault the French as much as I can fault the Germans for the problem that they're facing. The French did go for their all their own energy. They do produce their own energy. They get they produce nuclear. Their only mistake was relying too heavily on where they got the rest of their energy from. The natural gas that they get from Russia. They should have diversified that so that no one country could screw them over. But I guess Russian natural gas was just that cheap and it was just that economical. And that was really the only mistake the French made. So it's it is a bit more sad to see it happen to France because they did so much right like for all the criticisms I have France did it right and yet that one mistake is screwing them up and that's really the only mistake they made and it's, it's a shame it's a shame to happen I mean in Germany they're gonna go through this because of deliberate action the, the French just didn't diversify so there are cases where you have to import the energy but where you can you should produce it but that's a taboo for the green agenda. And I have a feeling that the crisis Europe is about to go through, and that includes France, is going to shake the green movement to its core as they have to grapple with people dealing with energy shortages and all the consequences that come with that. How are you going to advocate the abolition of fossil fuels in a country where you weren't dependent on fossil fuels that much to begin with like France and Germany Germany has a whole bunch of windmills and a whole bunch of solar panels I think they have the biggest solar panel array in the world probably outside of China who just did it because they could but in France they're powered by nuclear so how do you make the case that green energy would have saved you from the problem uh, which was caused by a lack of hydrocarbon how will you make the case that green energy uh, could have s prevented that problem from happening and is therefore the solution to the problem in your face when the countries that had the most green energy available to them also failed and are also going through an energy crunch and are also freezing in the middle of winter because there's not enough heat for the homes? How will you make the case? I, I'm not entirely sure if the case can still be made among people who are you know, realistic and not just ideologues in favor of these technologies. Because I've said for a long time that if you're going to talk green energy, you got to get real and start talking nuclear. France did that. And it still isn't enough. So how do you make the case that green energy is the solution to a lack of hydrocarbons when the countries with the most green energy in their energy grids their power grids also face this problem. 
I think we're going to look at the death of the Green Agenda in a very short period of time. Very, very, very soon. We're going to be watching in horrific detail. Uh, this is not going to be pretty. We're going to watch the Green Agenda die. And a lot of people are going to die with it. Or at the very least, a lot of people are going to starve with it and freeze with it until the green agenda dies. I think on the other side, though, we'll have lots of a very strong emphasis on domestic production, especially if other crises happen to cut, say, Europe off from the Middle East. Well, that That's a powder keg. Or and. You, at that point, you you need domestic production. At that point, you, you don't have any other option. The United States is a lot, but if we're killing ourselves with our, these regulations and the shutting down of uh, drilling leases on federal lands, well, then we're not going to have enough to give Europe. Europe will need to find domestic energy production. And, and they'll need to put it at the top of their list of priorities. So that's probably the only good thing that's going to come out of this crisis that France and Germany and Europe as a whole are going through. But it's going to be horrific getting there. And that's that, that's one of the things we're watching for. One of the things we hope for the best for. But I'm not entirely sure if they're going to be able to correct for the problem before the problem hits. They have They still have time. They still have time. And they are taking actions. I mean, Ursula von der Leyen just went to Azerbaijan. But will it be enough? That's the question. Will it be enough? You can't build a pipeline overnight. And the Russians know better than anybody how to build a pipeline. And it still takes them a couple of years to build a, a good one when they build their pipelines. So getting a pipeline done in six months is probably unheard of. So we will see what happens. We will definitely see what happens. But for now, we're going to jump to the Middle East. So, Biden has taken a trip to the Middle East. Uh, specifically, to meet with some of the Arab states, the leaders of some of the Arab states, in a mission to get them to increase their oil production. Upon making land in the city of Jeddah, that's, uh, that's in Saudi Arabia, upon making land, he made a pledge to commit $1 billion in food security assistance, along with a pledge for cooperation in 5G networks, cybersecurity, and space exploration, along with public health. These are all moves most likely meant to be concessions in, order, uh, in exchange for the increased oil production that he's looking for out of these countries. Uh, President Biden also, uh, while he was there, he, he met with a number of leaders because there's a, a major summit happening. I'll get into that summit uh, in a minute. It's not happening. It happened, past tense. Um, so there was a, a lot of leaders there, and they talked about a lot of different things. And while he was there, he met with the president of Palestine, Mahmoud Abbas. And in a conversation he had with the leader of the uh, suppressed state, I'll say that much, Biden denied the possibility of a two-state solution being feasible as of this, the current moment. He basically said it's something to work for, but 
can't be done right now, which means he's not going to do it. Uh, or at the very, we'll, we'll, we'll take him. We'll take him at his word and say that it's just not something that can be done right now. And he sort of left it at that. Although Mahmoud Abbas was persistent about it, he does want the two-state solution, and preferably with the backing of the United States to try to make it happen. And Biden sort of left him out to dry. But I can understand why, though. You know, as much as I despise this current administration, it's understandable why he wouldn't want to get involved in that mess. Because while I myself agree with the two-state solution, I've, it should have been done ages ago. Like, the two-state solution should have been the step one to the creation of the Israeli state. Like, when Israel was formed by moving all the... Uh, uh, I said all... By moving the many Jews who chose to leave Europe and come to what is now Israel, there were people living there, the Palestinians. If you were going to create this Israeli state in this area, you should have placed the Palestinians in one piece, or at the very least given them their, their own country. You know, uh, you, you didn't necessarily need to force the Palestinians to move anywhere, but make sure they had their own state if you're going to plop down a new state in the middle of nowhere. So you should have had a Palestine from the get-go that the Palestinians could have moved to, the Palestinians who would find themselves inside of Israel once it was established. And you could either have Palestine uh, just north of Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, or you could have Palestine uh, just south of Lebanon, wherever you wanted it. It didn't, wherever you wanted, uh, so long as it had access to the sea. And then you could give Israel the, the rest of the land that we currently associate with as being Israel. And then the Palestinians have their own state, the Israelis have their own state, and they can do what they want inside. That's not what was done. Instead, we decided to just plop Israel down there and then carve out these pieces of territory, these non-contiguous pieces of territory within Israel one on the coastline, the Gaza Strip, which is on the Mediterranean, and the other on the West Bank, which is landlocked, essentially. So you have these two pieces of Palestine, which are cut off from one another by Israel. And we are shocked that the Palestinians and the Israelis are constantly fighting one another. I mean, what started the war... In Europe, ju just a couple of years before Israel became a thing, what started the big war in Europe that led to the death of all those Jews? Germany fighting against Poland because Poland would not give up a piece of Polish land that would enable Germany to have a direct land route to East Prussia. Because after World War One, Germany had pieces of its land taken away from it. And they ended up being disconnected from East Prussia, which today would be sort of the Kaliningrad area of Russia, along with the bits and pieces of Poland around that area. That was East Prussia. And Germany, uh, did, they weren't contiguous with it. You had to travel either by sea to get to this piece of Germany. 
Oya to go through Poland. Germany made the demand that Poland either give up Danzig so that Germany could become contiguous again with its own territory, or they would have war. And they ended up at war, and the British and French went to war with Germany over that. That was how the war started in Europe. And so yet, even with that happening just a couple years prior, that war literally finished just like two years before the establishment of the Israeli state. Or maybe a couple of years. I'm, I'm thinking that it, it was established in 1947. But just a couple of years ago, you fought this massive war, which was started over this border conflict between a mainland and a disconnected piece of that country, which the mainland invaded another country to get to its own country, basically. Instead of having two contiguous states... And contiguous means that there's nothing cutting you off from your own territory. Like was the case with Germany and East Prussia, the enclave of Germany, that Germany had to go through Poland to get to. We put the Palestinians in the exact same situation as the Germans. In a sort of geostrategic sense, where there, there are two separate Palestines cut off by Israel. Israel is Poland and Palestine is Germany. We have put the Palestinians in the exact same situation that Germany was in when it went to war with Poland to gain access to East Prussia, a, a direct land access to East Prussia, which is which now we we more uh, it'd be more uh, current and up to date to you know refer more to the Russian land bridge to Crimea or a potential land bridge to Kaliningrad, which they may want in the future. I imagine they will. That's uh, more, as to say, more relevant to bring up the Russian comparisons here. But in the context of the time, it would be more relevant to bring up the German, you know, situation. Why would you create two separate pieces of Palestinian territory that are divided by Israel? It makes no sense. Sure, that might be where they lived at the time the Palestinians, but why would you, if you're going to give them a state, why would you carve it up like that? That, that? that was terrible, and it has led to decades of violence between these two peoples. And because the Israelis are the ones cutting Palestine in half, they have, and the Israelis are a contiguous country, they have much more leverage than the Palestinians ever will, which is why the Palestinians have to look to outside groups to help in their view, liberate themselves from Israel. The two-state solution is the answer. But it should have been a two-state solution when Israel was born. Because th that was the time to get this in order. You have the Israelis over here, the, the Jews who are oppressed, they don't want to be in Europe, they can come here, this is their new sanctuary, this is their state, this is their homeland, and then you give the Palestinians a separate piece of land whether that's north of Egypt, Sinai Peninsula, or whether that's just south of Lebanon, which wherever. But you don't separate Palestine from another piece of Palestine. You don't separate Israel from another piece of Israel. Two contiguous states, side by side, two-state solution. It should have been that simple. And we could have sidestepped all this ages ago had people, had people exercise some common sense. I hate to imply that I would have been smarter 
you know, than these people who made the, the decision in the end. But it's looking back, you know, because we, we have 2020 vision, you know, but looking back on the results of their decision, the people who decided to have Palestine cut in two by Israel, they've created nothing but problems. And that's not to suggest that Israel and Palestine being two contiguous states, they wouldn't have had problems with each other. At the very least, you could blame one side. You could blame a side. You could clearly identify who was and wasn't in the wrong because they would have their own states. You wouldn't have Israel occupying parts of Palestine and then forcing the Palestinians off their land. And then the Palestinians responding with violence. You would have clearly defined boundaries between the two and you would have a clear separation of geostrategic interests instead of Palestine having to go through an ideological enemy to get to their own country. And Israel being attacked by the people that they're forcing off their land in what is accurately described as ethnic cleansing. The Israelis are never going to get along with the Palestinians so long as Palestine has to fight Israel to get to its own piece of territory. There should have been a two-state solution a long time ago with clearly defined boundaries between the two, and from there, we could go. Maybe they still have problems. Okay. But we could have solved for a lot of the issues we have today by starting off with a two-state solution. But we don't have that. Instead, we have Israel technically owning all of Palestine, but Palestine acting as though it's independent, when, if we're honest, it's not. And plus, it's cut in two by Israel. Palestine looks for outside help, like it's doing right now with Biden. They need help. They can't beat the Israelis by themselves. And so, I, I advocate for the two-state solution, but because it should have been done a long time ago, and it wasn't, and now we're here decades later with established you know, boundaries, I guess, or at the very least an established perception of what this place is going to look like, I have no idea how you're going to get to a two-state solution now. I haven't the slightest idea. Because I imagine it's going to be much more of a violent process to create a two-state pro- uh, system now than it would have been in the 1940s when Israel was created. All because of one, in my view, terrible, terrible judgment. I advocate the two-state solution. I have no idea how you're going to get to it now without violence. But I believe that that's the only way this can end unless one side just wins and completely removes the other from the land, which is what the Israelis are trying to do. So uh, that's uh, uh, my my rant on this situation in Israel and Palestine. Two-state solution is the solution to go for. But we've let the problem go on for so long. That it's unclear how you're going to get there. But alas, uh, back to Biden's trip to the Middle East. Biden attended the GCC. uh, Plus three. The GCC plus three. That's the Gulf Cooperation Council. uh, A group consisting of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and Kuwait. As well as the UAE. And then there's the plus three. uh, Which is another set of countries. 
I believe it was Iraq and Yemen and another country. For some reason, I didn't write it down. Um, but he attended this conference, this council, and there he spoke to them saying, quote, let me state clearly that the United States is going to remain an active, engaged partner in the Middle East. As the world grows more competitive and the challenges we face more complex, it is becoming clear to me how closely involved America's interests are with the success of the Middle East. We will not walk away and leave a vacuum to be filled by China, Russia, or Iran. And, and quote. Now, while I, I am, I don't even need to tell you how much I disagree with that statement, but we'll just analyze what he's saying. Because here he's trying to use American involvement in the region as a sort of bargaining chip for Arab oil production. Sort of to get them to bring their production figures up, he'll offer up American involvement to protect them and as a sort of, again, a bargaining chip. To, you give me this, I'll give you that. Which has traditionally been the status quo between America and the Middle East. A much hated status quo. This was shut down immediately. By Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, he refused to increase his country's oil production. And quite frankly, I'm pretty sure most of the other Middle Eastern states are going to follow in his shoes. Uh, and to just a little bit of context as to what Arabia has been doing, that uh, really sort of exemplifies that they're not going to increase their own production as a sort of side story, because it's not really related to this, but. When you look at it in the context of him saying, no, we're not going to do it, it becomes apparent that he's not bluffing. And that is that recently he went as far as to import discounted Russian oil uh, to use for domestic power consumption. Because uh, there's a lot of air conditioners in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it's a desert. So to power uh, the power stations, he's importing Russian oil which the Russians are selling at a discount because they're having a little bit of issues with those sanctions and the discount is allowing them to get a whole bunch of new buyers. So, But he's buying Russian oil at a discount, so it's cheaper than Arabian oil right now. Arabia is buying Russian oil to keep Arabian power stations going, freeing up Arabian oil production to be sold on the international market. Like, he's, he's really not going to produce any more oil. He's, he's not producing anymore. He's content with selling at the current price with the current production. And why wouldn't he? Arabia's doing fine because they're an energy producer. Or Russia's doing pretty damn fine. They're an energy producer. So he's going he's gonna to make the most money while he can. The prices are sky high. And his demands are met, and any demands he does have, he can just buy Russian oil for discounted prices and continue selling the rest of his production at these sky-high oil prices. He has no incentive whatsoever to increase production, and the Russians don't either. And there, again, I'll just stress the importance of domestic production. I've rented enough about domestic production. I talked about it for Europe. I've I've talked about it multiple times for the United States. I won't rehash the United the U.S. perspective on that too much. But just remember, 
that we, the United States, were energy independent two years ago, and that was with American oil and American natural gas. That's all I'll say for now. But I do not believe that Biden's attempt to get the Middle Eastern nations to produce more oil is going to pan out for some of the reasons I've just mentioned to you. And I also don't believe he's going to pull back on any of the commitments he's made, which were likely bargaining chips to get them to go along. So we're just going to give them all these things free and get nothing in return. Ah, good old America last. Isn't it beautiful? Ah. But that's Biden and the Middle East. Uh, again, domestic production. It's taboo because of the green agenda, but it's the only solution worthwhile. But uh, we're going to talk now about the EU. And a new course which is being spoken of for it, which will force a crossroads. And I'm speaking about some of the things that the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, has made. And they're pretty interesting comments. Uh, which, if acted upon, would have some major implications, not just for Germany, but for the EU as a whole. And he said, quote, the European Union can no longer afford to keep national vetoes when deciding on European Union foreign and security policy if it wants to maintain a leading role in global politics, end quote. That was one of the statements he made, and in an article published by the Frankfurter Allgemeine, uh, he also went on to speak about how Moscow's war in Ukraine makes unity in Europe ever more urgent and increases pressure for an end to what he called a, quote, selfish blockades and, uh, of European decisions by individual member states. And he's referring to those vetoes when he says this. And he also says, quote, we simply can no longer afford national vetoes. For example, in foreign policy, if we want to continue to be heard in a world of competing great powers, these are some serious... Oh, uh, let me re rephrase that. Quote, we can no longer afford national vetoes, for example, in foreign policy, if we want to continue to be heard in a world of competing great powers. End quote. So those are the things he's been saying, and he's really targeting and taking aim at the national vetoes that EU member states have whenever the EU makes big decisions, namely about foreign policy and collective security. And he he's very clearly making it, making the case that we need to do away with these, or at the very least, lessen their powers so that they don't affect the EU security and EU foreign policies. And these are some serious statements coming out of Germany's leader, Germany being the de facto leader of the EU, uh, just by weight of its demographics and econ economy. These are, these are very serious. These are very big statements coming out. Uh, in the EU, uh, EDU, goodness, in the EU, again, major decisions require a unanimous vote. So any one country deciding to vote against an um, important decision, well, that effectively curb stomps any attempt that the EU makes to do anything if any one nation says we're not going to go along with it and there are 
27 countries in the EU that would all have to agree on something before it can be done. So what Schultz is saying is that the EU needs a change in policy, and he's obviously leaning towards a more centralized foreign policy decision-making process. <clears throat> and it's understandable why, you know. Now, I might not have a high opinion of the EU, but if you are a Europeanist like Schultz, and these are Europeanists are people who want greater integration within the EU, you would want something like this. Like, where the EU, the authority of the EU, the Commission, the Parliament, and their judiciary, they can act at least semi-independently of the member states. If you are in favor of the EU being a great power uh, and standing as a unified bloc, then at some point you're going to need something like this. And I, I would agree with him if that's if this is his stance that the EU needs more integration, then it makes sense for him to want this. And it's true that the national vetoes prevent the EU from being very effective, especially in crisis situations. Uh, I harp on them all the time. Uh, I've only recently changed my stance on them being the new Holy Roman Empire in favor of calling the free world the Holy Roman Empire, which makes the EU Byzantium always in the shadow of what they used to be, which is Rome. And the shadow of what they used to be being the European colonial powers. But even in spite of my rather low opinion of the EU, he makes sense. He makes sense. Because, it's again, it's true that the national vetoes prevent the EU from being very effective in crunch situations. And if the EU is really meant to be a political union, as it is angling to be currently. It used to be just the European coal and steel community. It was more of an economic alliance rather than a political thing. But if it's going to be a political union in, to, in the modern world, then it does make sense to have a more cohesive foreign policy institution. And it, by necessity, that institution would have to bypass the national veto powers that individual member states have. But therein lies the problem. It would have to bypass individual member states, something that many of the smaller EU members inevitably would not agree to unless there was some sort of protection for them in being a part of a larger system. Uh, after all, if the EU can make those types of decisions without consulting its member states, then the power dynamic between said member states and the Central European Authority shifts dramatically in favor of that Central European Authority and away from the individual countries that make up the EU. And this is a similar situation to America, a similar specifically the 13 colonies. Uh, as the EU does function uh, pretty similarly to the United States in the the very very early United States, mind you, uh, it's the uh, goodness. <laughs> I was about to say something, and I realized that I skipped over like half my notes. But it's uh, very similar to how the United States was post seventeen eighty three when we first got our independence, because. Before that, 
the 13 colonies used to be functionally their own countries, all under the British crown. And they came together during the revolution under a single continental congress. And after we won our independence, it became the, uh, we unified under the Articles of Confederation, which was the first real government of the United States. Well, I guess the Continental Congress technically was, but we didn't have a president back then. We had a president under the Articles of Confederation, though. So that was sort of the, re the first true government of the United States of America. And then later, under the U.S. Constitution. But the key difference here between the experience of the 13 colonies, which came together under the Articles of Confederation, and then uh, eventually under the Constitution... The key difference between the colonies in America and the countries in Europe that make up the EU is that each of the colonies in the United States consented to the surrender of their sovereignty to a federal government and then were allowed to consent again to the strengthening of that central federal authority when they ratified the Constitution. So they were given formal opportunities to enable, one, uh, the surrender of their sovereignty to a federal government, which was under the Articles of Confederation when they first agreed to a union, and then later to agree to a stronger federal government under the Constitution. They ratified both. And I'm pretty sure there were more states around that had to ratify it, the Constitution the second time that the states had to come together to make that consensual agreement to give more power to a central authority. They were given the opportunity to do that, a formal chance to do that, and they consented. The member states of the EU have never been given that opportunity. Uh, they've never been given the opportunity to truly acknowledge and accept a greater political union like the colonies did. Uh, I'm pretty sure most EU members are still under the impression that it's just an economic union, and it happens to have a, a parliament, and a commission, and a judiciary. It's, it's still technically supposed to be just an economic union, and they still get to keep their rights as an individual nation. They've never accepted and acknowledged a greater political union like the colonies did, which means that the countries that make up the EU have never officially consented to giving up their own national sovereignty to a higher authority in the EU, which is evident by countries like France, Germany, Poland, and Hungary pursuing their own completely different foreign policy agendas, all of which completely independent of whatever the EU position slash policy happen happens to be. France in West Africa and Lebanon, where they have troops and giving financial aid, Germany in Eastern Europe, where they're uh, encouraging trade ties and they were really going for more integration with Ukraine before the war uh, to support German industry. You had Poland, uh, or I guess also the Nord Stream pipelines, one in Nord Stream 1 and 2 for Germany. Uh, that wasn't an EU policy. The, the Germans did that all on their own. They have a direct line to Russia now. And then there's Poland with its military aid to Ukraine, and even before that, its overt political support for opposition candidates in Belarus, 
And then there's Hungary and its anti-immigrant border policy, which and as well as their continued uh, unabated relationship with Russia in the face of endless sanctions and endless talk of being open to migrants. So the, the Hungarians just went in the complete opposite direction, regardless of what the EU position was. You have all these countries pursuing their own independent foreign policies, and yet they're all part of the EU. And it doesn't matter what the EU position is, they these countries choose to do their own thing. Now, most other countries go along with what the EU position is, but they don't have to. And that's the thing. They can choose to go their own way, and some countries do. But what we're looking at here is that the countries of Europe, specifically the EU, are eventually going to have to make the decision on who has the supreme authority. Because it's looking like it's we're, we're going to come to that. Now, the British have already made their choice, but the rest of Europe is going to have to make their choice in the coming months, perhaps years. Uh, but given how bad things are getting, we might see that decision being made in months for a number of countries. The European nations who are part of the EU are increasingly being put in a position where they're going to have to answer this fundamental question about themselves and their relationship to the EU. Who is Who has the supreme authority? The member nations of the EU? Or the EU itself. Now, I, it is my opinion that the longer they delay this much-needed clarification of the power dynamics between the EU and its constituent states, the more problems that will arise from that lack of clarity. You need to clearly define boundaries, powers. Uh, you need to clearly define who has what authority over this and who doesn't have authority over that. And where power gets delegated to the individual member states, where power must be conceded to the EU. You have to you have to you have to clarify those. You have to clarify those otherwise you're not going to be able to figure it out. There there's going to be inconsistencies. There's going to be confusion and confusion over something can create conflict as we can see between differing policy positions and namely Hungary with a the EU says we're open to immigrants, the Hungarians build a border wall. The EU says we're going to sanction Russia, the Hungarians say let the gas flow. If you don't clarify who has the authority, then you're going to create confusion. And that confusion will create problems. Problems which, if left alone, can probably cause the EU to fall apart just as easily as... Countries given the formal option to, you know, relinquish their sovereignty to the EU and then them saying no and leaving the EU. These problems, if they're left alone, they could result in the EU falling apart due to disunity over disputes over who has the power. Because it's never, if it's never clarified, then you're going to have those disputes over who has the real authority. No, my country has this authority. No, the EU has this authority. We're all we're all in this together. No, my country has this authority. Nowhere in the EU charter says that I have to give this up to you. If you don't clarify it, you're going to create those problems. And those problems will create divisions. And if you don't address it now, then those divisions get entrenched. 
And people will believe that they are right because there's nothing in the EU's charter that says, hey, this is their powers, which means if it's not in the EU, then it's our powers. But the EU says, we're all in this together. But if you don't clarify that, then you're going to have people who will get dug into their position and won't want to be a part of the EU. When you do make that clarification later on, after it has already been decided that the EU doesn't have that power in the minds of the people who don't want to give it to you. Similar to how, uh, and I'm really laying out a, a whole U.S. Civil War type scenario here, uh, a U.S. secession crisis anyway, maybe not Civil War, where the, and I, I guess that is sort of an apt comparison, a part of the Civil War was disagreements over, you know, states' rights versus federal government rights. Who has the power? And there wasn't quite enough clarification. It took a fight to clarify it, although slavery was the real driving cause for the Civil War. But states' rights was one of the one of the other major issues. And I'm just being honest here. We might see a similar breakdown of the EU over similar lack of clarification between EU authority and member state authority. Which is why I say... They need to clarify it. Otherwise, they'll run into those problems. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the European Union is, in my view, from my constant observation, the EU is coming upon a crossroads. And it will be very interesting to see how they respond to that fork in the road. Do they become one? Or do they return to being the many? We will see. But that my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus. Mm-hmm.